What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This week on The Takeout, radio host and author Bob Garfield, his new book, American Manifesto, is out January 14th. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, Chief White House Correspondent, Chief Washington Correspondent. God, that old title, I can never get rid of it. CBS News and host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, where each and every week we are two things. What are those two things? Well, one, relentlessly curious. Two, steadfastly non-ideological. We also love books on this show. We love to talk to people who write books and learn about what they've learned as they have done that work. And before we get started, you might say to yourself, Major, this sounds like a navel-gazing episode. Oh, a whole long conversation about the media. Oh, God, you spent your whole life in the media. What do we care? What do we care? You care a lot, ladies and gentlemen. Not about what I do, necessarily, what the show does, though I love you for listening to it and getting with the vibe of it, but how the media has changed in this country and how those changes change the way we talk to each other, think about each other, and interact with each other in our country. It's a big topic, and to help us deconstruct that topic is a gentleman named Bob Garfield. Now, Bob Garfield has a very whimsical kind of bio on his website. It says, Bob Garfield isn't exactly a media whore, but he's extremely promiscuous. In the world of marketing, his bio says, he is an institution like the Red Cross or San Quentin. Folks, that's the kind of writing you don't come across just anywhere. Bob Garfield, Welcome to the Takeout Podcast. Thanks for being with us. Uh, thank you, Major. That was uh, a bunch of nonsense, and you should know better. <laughs> to quote the president, yes. Um, you have a show called On the Media, a WNYC. Most of our listeners and viewers will be familiar with that because it is on many NPR stations. Tell my audience a little bit about that show. Uh, well, we've been doing it for 19 years, and uh, it's, uh, well... Oddly enough, given its title, On the Media, it's largely on the media. and our Truth in advertising. <laughs> absolutely. And our, our interactions, quite a rarity, but that's another subject. That's another and, topic. And I could go on there know, as I well. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's about not just the, the news about the news, but how we, we filter our every interaction in life through it, how, it's, uh, how it is the prism that helps us understand the world around us and sometimes helps us, unfortunately, misunderstand the world around us. So, and we're largely, we're also interested in, you know, First Amendment stuff uh, and just kind of the notion of narrative, the stories that we tell ourselves. You have written a new book called American Manifesto, the subtitle Saving Democracy from Villains, Vandals, and, interestingly, I'm adding that word, interestingly, ourselves. What role does the ourselves part 
play in saving American democracy? Well, uh, I'll say this. First, the, the problems that we have with American democracy are not confined to our current political insanity. Uh, it's it's uh, obviously a, a big issue, but it's, it, this, is not, this book is not about Trump. Uh, it's about many, I would say, converging factors that have put us on a precipice, such as we haven't seen you know, maybe since the Civil War. So, uh, you know, we are highly polarized. The, the national government is essentially dysfunctional. Everyone is in their camps. So, you know, we, we know where to assign blame for much of that. Uh, but there are other reasons we're in this fix, and uh, part of the book is, is, uh, is devoted to social media and the role Facebook has played, and it is a big one. But it, there's also ourselves and, and our own human tendencies and our own complacency, uh, and our, our own, uh, I would say, innate uh, compulsion to forge an identity, uh, which is, it turns out, I, I did a little, uh, you know, Googling. Yes. And it turns out... Otherwise the, known as research. <laughs> yes, research. It used to be called research. It used to happen in libraries. Yeah. Right. Big stone structures. <laughs> now I just toggle from aisles. sports yes. scores and to... and dim lighting. Yes. yes. So... Uh, 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 what, it, what it comes down to is that identity is not only a human impulse or a, an animal instinct. It's actually, it, it, it actually happens in the plant world itself. There is something natural that uh, impels us to define ourselves, uh, you know, sometimes to get a mate. Mm-hmm. Sometimes to be able to live with ourselves, right. to develop self-confidence, to develop ambition, to set goals, whatever. Part of that is identity. And if I hear you correctly, all species, all species. Uh, but the the, uh, the there's gene- something unique about America's approach to this, right? Uh, yes, there is. Genus Americanus, <laughs> yes, uh, is particularly susceptible to the uh, to the the folly that goes with. Uh, forging an identity and part of it is because it is so ingrained in the american myth of uh, of uh, self-improvement uh, you know i think thomas jefferson and the the declaration of independence and every commencement speaker ever tells us that we have to you know do a, uh, an inventory of ourselves or do an assay of our characters and uh, obviously, at the moment, they suck, and then you have to, you know, fix that. Right, and get better. And get, get yourself better. Right. And then, you, then everything will flow Quickly. from that, including riches, right. but, but also dignity. And, we, um, and, and unfortunately, this often leads to disappointment. You know, we're, we're kind of set up, as a society, individuals are set up to fail. And th- which, you know, has always been the case, at least for the last century and a half, uh, but but now the the economy has has created a lot of have-nots to go with the haves. The demographics of the country are rapidly changing, so the people who used to hold all the power are, are seeing that power, or at least their representation, uh, slip away, uh, and uh, they, they're you know they're feeling that the country that they grew up on grew up in Rather. is is slipping away and that their influence their power their respect their very dignity is slipping through their fingers and if i read the book correctly part of president trump's election is a reflection of that feeling sentiment and more lo- more i called it in my book mr trump's wild ride primal scream 
Uh, absolutely. And, you know, I, and I should add, although I was just describing a phenomenon with, you know, the, the white middle class, uh, it, it is equally true, and, and which ha- is tr- where Trump's base resides, the middle class and the working class. Uh, this fact, often ignored fact about American identity and uh, the collateral damage therefrom, it also applies to the political left. They also believe that they have, uh, that the system has been rigged, and they believe that because it has. Uh, there is no economic justice, there is no social justice, and they're prepared to believe that they have been failed by um, American democracy as well. So there's a lot of disaffection, a lot of misgivings, a lot of desperation, and a lot of polarization, and it, it's not productive. Now, there are many in my audience, Bob, who are Trump supporters. This shows on 55 radio stations around the country, and they would be thinking, wow, he's such a downer. He doesn't believe in American exceptionalism. He sounds like he really hates Trump. But I want to read for something from the book that might give them a slightly different perspective to show how you also have an intuition about the left, as you just mentioned. This is from page 86. There is what liberal America knew and what we believe. This is about the 2016 election or wish to believe. The commentary, the body language, the permanent anointing of the first woman president did not project the intellectual honesty of which we are so proud and which we so lord over the political right. What was projected was arrogance, self-satisfaction, tone deafness, and exactly the kind of elitist superiority that so infuriates red America in the first place. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. Uh, you know, no, neither side in this great ideological gap got there uh, for no reason mm-hmm. and uh, if, if we're talking about the the smoldering resentments of the right it's not only in reaction to the arrogance of the left uh, per se the explicit arrogance of the left uh, it, it's about 50 years of American advancement along the lines of liberal democracy uh, that also took place in in Western Europe and through most mo- uh, much of the world. And it's, you know, it's 50 years of Miranda decisions and taking the prayer out of schools and Roe v. Wade and uh, the Civil Rights Act and all sorts of other major changes in the society that a lot of people felt were uh, uh, pushed on them. And uh, they, they're, they're mad. They've been seething for 50 years and they're having their moment. That's the voice of Bob Garfield. I'm Major Garrett. We're at Busboys and Poets. Stay tuned for segment two of The Takeout in just a second. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. We're with Bob Garfield. Uh, He has a show that he co-hosts called On the Media. He has also written his sixth book, Two Ahead of Me, but I'm not comparing or anything like that. American Manifesto, saving democracy from villains, vandals, and ourselves. One of the things we love to do on the show, Bob, is take phrases that people hear all the time and actually stop and ask ourselves what they mean. Washington is famous, I would say infamous, 
for trafficking and all sorts of acronyms and slogans. And we don't pause, I don't think, to evaluate what they mean or what they mean to us or how the definitions might be important. Identity politics, thrown around all the time. What does it mean to you and how do you describe it in the book? I'll, I'll answer that question, uh, but first I'm going to give you a different uh, answer, a different question. Uh, Bob, can you give me an example of the kind of language that, that exists in, uh, inside the Beltway that doesn't exist anywhere else? Why, yes, uh, there's a book called The Dictionary of Naval Abbreviations, and it is a dictionary of naval abbreviations, and my favorite in it is called Dick Navab, Dick Navab, and uh, what that stands for is the Dictionary of <laughs> Naval <laughs> Abbreviations. <laughs> now, now, identity I, politics. I, I, I was afraid that the entire FCC was going to come rushing through the door any second, but happily, that's not necessary. Yeah, I apologize. I probably hit <laughs> nav too hard. <laughs> right, yes. Uh, yes. Your, your question, identity politics. Well, this is... Uh, this is when uh, the, your notion of who you are, mm -hmm. uh, what group you're a part of, and who you are as an individual, uh, it, it gets sliced ever, ever, ever thinner. So, Speaking you, of slicing, yes. we, we need order because <laughs> I'm really hungry. Hello. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Behind me. There we go. Hello. Could I have the Western omelet, please? Yes, absolutely. With fruit and a side of sausage, uh, the cranberry sausage. Yeah, thanks. You know, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Okay. I'm going to have the Western omelet <laughs> with fruit and not a side <laughs> of sausage. Oh, you're living on the edge. Yeah, I like yeah. That. that's how I roll. Put that's that good. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, identity politics, every s thinner slices of, our s of ourselves or who we are comfortable with. Of the groups that we uh, identify, identify ourselves as being part of. Mm -hmm. uh, this e pluribus unum, for many one, <laughs> melting pot, forget that. We are now, uh, and this is especially a phenomenon, but not exclusively, especially a phenomenon on the left. Uh, sexual politics get sliced into, um, uh, sexual identity gets sliced into, you know, it's like the New York subway map. Uh, uh, feminism is divided into 40 different subcategories. Uh, there, we, um, and I'm, I'm sorry I, ch I chose those two as an examples, although they're, they're pretty good ones. Uh, but we, uh, we are defined by our character and our interests, but also by our grievance. Mm -hmm. This is a nation where politics is defined uh, nowadays by grievance. And it's not that grievances aren't valid. And those 50 years of, of uh, changes in the law to repair uh, flaws in social justice and economic justice, uh, they should have happened in my view. I mean, I, you know, I think we have been on the right path but it's beyond just voting rights for, for African-Americans. Now we're talking into, into nano-grievance. And we have formed tiny, tiny, tiny little tribes. And it's hard even on the left. For example, if you're looking at the, the, the race for the Democratic nomination, they're at last count, I believe. Well, we're 117 candidates for the nomination. <laughs> Give or take. And right. they're all different. Right. They're, you know, it's hard to lump one group in with the other because they've also uh, f uh, finally sliced their, their platforms. And, and that's what we've become. Uh, and social media intensifies this? Oh, does it ever. In fact, that's his business model. So, you know, 
you know how if you're shopping for a pair of shoes online, right? Mm -hmm. And you either buy the shoes or you don't. But either way, that an ad for those shoes follows you everywhere you go online. No matter what site you're visiting, you're going to see an ad for those shoes pop up. Uh, and it, it lasts for months sometimes, right? right? And why? Well, because they know from the immense trove of data that they collect that someone who sees the thing that they were interested in before is much more likely in the end to buy it. And they know if they keep showing you that ad, even uh, if the first week you ignore it, the second week you ignore it, the third week you ignore it, there is a statistical probability by the fourth or fifth week you'll relent. Mm -hmm. And that's why they're willing to creep you out for months because they know in the end there's a chance of uh, a greater chance of making the sale. What is edge rank? Aha. Okay, so edge rank is uh, the the uh, Facebook algorithm that takes that phenomenon and applies it to absolutely everything you do on Facebook. If you show an interest in uh, in uh, University of California Davis uh, women's lacrosse. You're going to get fed in your newsfeed a lots and lots of stuff. I, by the way, I have no idea where that came from. Right, that's good though. <laughs> the fighting from, from the land of obscurity. Yes, yeah, okay. it's quite a pull. I agree. Well, <laughs> uh, you can get more and more women's lacrosse from the West Coast content. Right. right. And uh, and if you show interest in oh I don't know Nazism, you're going to get the same thing as well. And if you believe in conspiracy theories or uh, if you uh, collect antique potpourri canisters, whatever it is that you show an interest in, especially if you not only look at it online, but if you share it, you're going to get fed more and more and more of that and less and less and less of everything else. It is, uh, it is the ultimate echo chamber, or as it's often called, filter bubble. And you can see how it's, the issue is not about the shoes that are chasing you around the net. It is the content, some of which is very, very sketchy, that you are inundated with to the exclusion of often facts and, and if truth. I and if I read your book correctly, not only is the business model devoted to this, but part of the reason the, the business model is devoted to it is because there's psychological data that shows there becomes, if not an addictive component to this, something that is self-reinforcing. Yeah. Well, it, it, in fact, it is an addictive component, and that is their business model. Because how does Facebook make money? Well, as Mark Zuckerberg had to explain to a U.S. senator in some hearings about a year ago, uh, Senator, we sell advertising. And the way that they sell more advertising is by keeping people on Facebook for longer and longer and longer. And how do you do that? Well, you keep just like you... You know, just like rats in a cage will drink the water with cocaine in it more than they'll drink the water without cocaine in it. The people on Facebook, you and me and everybody else, will will drink the water that gives them a charge. And if what gives you a charge is conspiracy theories about Sandy Hook, uh, that that's all you're going to see. And th as a consequence, we we find ourselves in in these. There's this archipelago of, of islands, of, of ideology and identity, and we're, we're trapped there. And is it your belief, Bob, that people kind of found their way into it? They were lured into this place? Or is it a reflection of, I'm an American, I want what I want, and I want more of what I want, and there's nothing wrong with that, and why should you get in the way of what I want? Yeah, I'm going to answer that question. The answer is that is correct. It's both things. It's both. And, you know, it's hard to argue when something is available and it's legal that if you want to have more of it, 
you, you know, that you shouldn't. That's a, that's a crummy argument. Although moms have been making it all the time, uh, in, you know, in, since time immemorial, because, yes, the kid likes chocolate cake, but really you got to eat your broccoli. And uh, Facebook is a uh, chocolate cake 24-7 enterprise. Is Google off the hook on this? Nope. Uh, no, Google does the same thing in its news feed. If you're a consumer of tons and tons and tons of Fox News and Breitbart or, let's just say, MSNBC and The Nation and Salon, you're just going to continue to be fed stuff from the places that you, that you visit. Uh, it's, it's essentially the same kind of filter bubble. And YouTube. YouTube is even more insidious because... If YouTube you, owned by? Uh, by Google. If you... Uh, if you are looking at a video alleging uh, Pizzagate uh, that uh, Hillary Clinton and the Democratic National Committee are have a, a pedophilia ch- child trafficking ring operating out of uh, in the basement of a Washington D.C. pizzeria, um, you're going to get fed more of that or things more, along yeah, those lines. Yes, yeah, and if you go down the right rail of YouTube, just. There's a thing they call, I think, three degrees of Alex Jones. And if you click on one, within three more clicks, you will be fed a whole series of other conspiratorial kinds of content. And uh, in that world, people can believe things that just, you know, aren't true, but they conform with their worldview. There is your omelet handed to you by me. And with the omelet's arrival, we will go to segment three. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. We're about the boys and poets back in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to one of our favorite locations, Busboys and Poets. Our guest, Bob Garfield, he has a new book, American Manifesto, Saving Democracy from Villains, Vandals, and Ourselves. He's also co-host of WNYC's On the Media. I want to play for you, Bob, a couple of sound bites from a recent interview Gail King did with Mark Zuckerberg. This was conducted on December 3rd, so just very recently. Uh, Zoe, those are sound bites uh, two and three. Please run them consecutively. You lead a company that has great power and great influence. Should one person or one company have that much power? So I think that the basic answer to what you're saying is no. You say no. Yeah. Yeah. Private companies should not uh, be in the position of making so many important decisions, balancing different social values that we all care about. I think the real answer is for there to be um, regulation. And you welcome the- regulation? Absolutely. Mark, you say you welcome regulation. People say, I'll give you some regulation. Let's break up Facebook. Well, I think that there are real issues. I think a lot of people are upset and are, are talking about measures um, like breaking up the company that aren't actually going to fix these issues. Yeah. Right? I mean, breaking up Facebook isn't going to address the, the question of political discourse. Bob, evaluate that for our audience. Okay. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg is a tool. And uh, that's, that's my evaluation. And uh, he has a long history of getting his uh, hand caught in the cookie jar, apologizing profusely, saying we're going to do better. And in this case, perhaps to stave off regulation of, of the most onerous sort to at least seem to invite regulation of perhaps a more gentle sort. And uh, it's a really good practice to, if you're seeing Mark Zuckerberg say something that seems uh, 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 penitent in any way, to assume that he's lying. And, uh, you know, we have, 
15 years of documented history to show that. And, uh, but, you and know, the documented was, history you're referring to is Facebook continuing to do the things that it apologizes for. That's correct. That's correct. And to make unilateral decisions and to renege on previous unilateral decisions. And, you know, I think maybe most indictingly in the investigation of Russian interference in our elections and the use of Facebook to to feed all sorts of uh, uh, real fake news, which is to say fake news uh, to to users in these these Facebook filter bubbles. the, there, there was a bipartisan investigation where they hired three different sets of academic experts, the Senate did, uh, Congress did, and, uh, they, and Facebook participated in the investigation, but mainly stonewalled it. Uh, they, they were not helpful. They were obstructive. They did not give the investigators access to the most important data. They gave them a little bit, just kind of a taste. Uh, and uh, they they kept the rest to themselves. And why? Well, because their business model is approximately like the Sonola cartel. They know what people want, you know, matter whether it's good for them or bad for them. They're willing to do whatever it is to deliver that product to them, and they'll try to be just on the outer edges of the reach of the law uh, in so doing. But Zuckerberg is right. Uh, he may be the most powerful and dangerous man in the world, and no... All that power should not be invested in one uh, man with, you know, so much stake in the business fortunes of Facebook. And yet we hand this data over ourselves. We do that willingly. We, We give them keys to all of our behavioral tendencies. We allow companies, maybe unwittingly, but we allow companies like Facebook to mine and hold that data, sell it, repackage it, repurpose it, all for profit. It seems like of what I hear you saying is we're not as aware as we should have been early on about what, what's going to happen and what is happening. But to go to your metaphor, information's not cocaine. It's not the same as a cartel or drug cartel because information is, at one level, benign. But mm-hmm. from your perspective, not necessarily. Well, if it's not true and if it's squeezing out truth and, and uh, evidence and reason, uh, it... it uh, misinformation and disinformation actually becomes very dangerous, as the 2016 election showed us. But um, uh, to your uh, assertion that we do this willingly, that is true. Uh, even though something like 90% of Americans say they're very nervous about social media, uh, this impulse that I started talking about in the very beginning of this conversation right. to establish your identity, to create a persona, to let your the world, the, let, to write your own narrative and let the whole world know who you are is so strong. It, um, one of the philosophers, I, I think it was Aristotle, called it one of the compulsions. And uh, that compulsion is so strong that we throw that caution to the wind. We say it's dangerous to, to give our data to marketers and governments and, uh, and uh, social media platforms and any other prying eyes. We know it's dangerous, and yet that cocaine makes us feel so good. Now, say so you said it wasn't really a good metaphor, but... Uh, You're going to go with it. You're going to stay with it. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Now, uh, help my audience understand, because there's a lot of numbers in the book about the business business impact of this phenomenon, Facebook and Google. There is this and was this large world of advertising revenue. 
How has it been changed by the presence of Facebook and Google? And how was that advertising universe structured before in sort of the old media days, if we want to use that? And what does it look like now? Yeah, the old days, which either were or were not the good old days because there was a lot of media concentration, a lot of power invested in the hands of very few corporate owners. But putting that aside for a moment, in the old days, like for 300 years, it was just the most perfect synergy in, in business history. Uh, marketers, brands, wanted to reach audiences. Uh, audiences wanted free or subsidized content. They wanted to watch the Beverly Hillbillies and they didn't want to pay for it. Uh, they wanted to watch the Space Shots. They wanted to read Life Magazine and they didn't want to pay what an actual copy of Life Magazine would cost. To if produce, right. To produce. Uh, they wanted to, to read the newspaper and, you know, they... At 25 cents a pop, at not 25, 3.50. <laughs> exactly. So the quid pro quo, the unspoken compact between the audience and and uh, the media companies and marketers is, yeah, I'll, I'll live with your advertising. I'll live with it uh, because I get stuff. I, I get something in exchange. So the, the audience got free or subsidized media. The, the advertisers got reached to this gigantic audience. And, and the media had profit margins in the range of 30 and 40%. I mean, and it was astonishing. And the year reason, after year, year after, after year. Yeah, after but year. for 300 right, years. Right, yeah. So uh, it, it was a pretty nice setup, and every, you know, nobody was getting screwed. What, um, what, oh, by the way, and the media were protected in these enormous pop profit machines because it was really expensive to start a TV station and right. broadcast powers and obtain a license and get a printing press, whatever. All uh, the barriers of entry were very high. Very, very high. So if, if you had. The, the, the daily newspaper in uh, Morgantown, West Virginia, you were sitting pretty. All the supermarkets, all the car dealers, everybody had to go through you. Okay, that was the old days. There were maybe 100,000 media outfits, outlets of any size in the world. Okay, maybe it was a half a million, let's just say. Uh, and they split up the, the global ad revenue, or the, you know, the global supply of ad revenue which was, I, 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 truthfully, the numbers are escaping me. I'm a senior American, and I'm not good at remembering, you know, right. things. But it, let's just say it was $600 billion That's worldwide. what it says in the book. Okay. So that was divided among some finite number of media organizations. Now, there are nearly infinite media outlets. Uh, tens and hundreds of millions of websites, blogs, publications, YouTube channels, you name it. And they're all fighting for a slice of the same pie. The pie didn't go get bigger. It stayed the same. And so uh, goodbye profit margins of 30% or 20% or 10% or 5%. Uh, media is no longer a, a profitable business. Even the big dominant online you know, uh, digital native companies are not actually making any money. They're just burning the venture capital that has been provided to them by Silicon Valley. So um, it's a terrible business now, and which is why your newspapers, if they still exist in your community, are skinnier, have no bureaus, have no travel to and we're gonna, local sports teams. In segment four, we're going to tabulate ever so briefly the impact on local newspapering and a community's ability to talk to itself through its local newspaper. When we come back for segment four, I'm Major Garrett with Bob Garfield. We're at Busboys and Poets back in a second. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. I promised you some tabulation of the effect that Facebook, Google, and other disrupting forces in American media have had on newspapers. I just want to give you a couple of statistics from Bob Garfield, our special guest book, American Manifesto. This is from page 62. Some 1,800 newspapers, more than one in five, have been shut down over the past 15 years. Of the nation's 3,143 counties, half have only one paper, and it is most likely a small weekly. The vast majority, around 5,500, of those newspapers have a circulation of less than 15,000. About 200 counties have no newspaper at all. Of the 7,100 surviving newspapers, many are shells or ghosts of their former selves. That is all or mostly a result of Google and Facebook? Well, it's absolutely a result of the digital revolution that has created uh, 17 gazillion different places to go for your news and information entertainment. And also taken away circulation revenue. Remember this, folks, those of us who are of a certain age, as Bob and I certainly are, you remember newspapers had a thick, especially on Sundays, classified ad section. Not just legal notices, but classified ads. If you wanted to sell the kittens or your golf clubs or your begonias, you put in an agate type what you were selling at what price and how to be reached. When eBay came along, Craigslist came along, and other digital attic emptiers, that revenue disappeared. So Google and Facebook take some or a lot, and the loss of classified revenue takes the rest. Uh, yeah, they, that was the, actually the, the, the first big blow of the digital revolution, the Craigslist and the eBay, which... Uh, be- which completely supplanted the, the most profitable part of the newspaper business. Right. Now, look, I'm not arguing that newspapers are supposed to sit there and, and exist as they always have been. It's a new medium. People wanted to do it. It's better. It's more convenient. I'm not saying it's bad by itself, but it does change an ability of a newspaper to, A, exist, and by its existence, allow a community to talk to itself. Yeah. I mean, it just became a bad business. Right. It was an incredible business for three centuries, and now it's just a terrible business because the audience have generally shrunk uh, because the revenue is limited. And, oh, by the way, because there is such a glut of, of uh, uh, supply, content supply, the consequence is by the law of supply and demand, the uh, it's a buyer's market for advertisers. So uh, when uh, there's this expression... Uh, analog dollars to digital dimes, the same audience, even if you can maintain it, fetches much, much less from the advertisers than it, uh, it uh, used to. It's what they call a cluster fail. Right. Except that they don't call it a cluster fail. Right. There's so another F word there, involved. Yeah. 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 So, um, calm down, FCC. Please, calm and, down. Yeah, you, you've dodged a number of bullets <laughs> at this stage of the conversation. Now, now how, does Google and, how do Google and Facebook, and I guess uh, to a small degree, Apple factor into this revenue stream? Oh, because uh, of that fixed amount of global advertising dollars, that's $600 million, they get about 25% of it. and That's a lot of money. Yeah, and literally, literally every new dollar of spending goes to Google and Facebook. So if there is any growth in the advertising market, 
it goes entirely to them. And uh, as a consequence, as a consequence, it is corrosive to our democracy because it is uh, accelerating the demise of places where you can get actual news, and it is filling these filter bubbles with uh, content that uh, is not only you know is not just worthless; it's worse than worthless. It's it's toxic. And there are real-world ramifications when newspapers shrink away from their community. You have a story in there about Flint, Michigan. Yeah. Uh, when the, the, Flint, the city of Flint decided to save some money to, uh, in their, their water supply, and they switched from one source of water to another, and uh, it was a penny-wise, pound-foolish decision because the, the new water supply put gigantic gigantic amounts of lead into the city water. And this went on for years, uh, even though there was some rumbling about it, there was some community dissatisfaction, there were complaints and so forth, the state environmental and federal environmental protection agencies were involved, and yet it it, 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 ne- it, it did, because no, the public never really knew about it. Why? Because the Detroit Free Press and uh, the other local newspapers did not have the resources to chase around uh, water quality issues. And the American Civil Liberties Union, of all places, hired essentially a freelance journalist to do a little you know, gumshoe work to look into this. And it was not the local newspapers. It was not journalists. It was the ACLU that ga- gathered the data to show that not only the water was extremely toxic, but the state had been um, uh, burying the information and being disingenuous with the public. So in the end, of course, they had to switch back to the original right. water supply uh, at a, an enormous cost, and for Not several to years, the cost to those who were victimized by it. Yeah, um, hundreds of thousands of people, including children, who were given uh, lead-filled water that damaged their intellectual capabilities, and that's because not that the reporters, the newspapers, were asleep at the switch. It's because they weren't at the switch switch because they couldn't afford to cover the switch. Right. I also want to talk to you about something in this conversation related to Google and Facebook that we hear from the president sometimes, and I want you to evaluate it for our audience. Zoe, that's number four, please. Yeah, I think Google is uh, really taking advantage of a lot of people, and I think that's a very serious thing, and it's a very serious charge. I think what Google and what others are doing, if you look at what's going on at Twitter, if you look at what's going on in Facebook, uh, they better be careful because you're, you can't do that to people. So I think that Google and Twitter and Facebook, they're really treading on very, very troubled territory, and they have to be careful. It's not fair to large portions of the population. What, what the president's driving at there is there's something inherently biased against conservatives or Trump Republicans on those platforms. Yeah, there are huge problems with, with uh, Facebook and, and uh, Google. Absolutely zero of them have to do with a bias against conservatives. There is no... I mean, algorithms can be biased if they reflect the worldview of the people who are writing the code, right? But that's not the case in, in, with either of those companies. These are indeed very, very dangerous companies. And what they do to the American people is not fair. And we do have to be paying attention. But like most of what the president says, and, and by the way, I am unapologetically anti-Trump to the core of my being, uh, uh, you know, contrary to what he says, and, and like most of the other stuff that comes out of his mouth, uh, 
that's I did not I did not f- forge that paragraph properly. I will say the president is lying about that, as he lies about most everything else, and d- most dangerously, he's calling attention to the very. To, uh, to taking attention away from the actual crisis with these companies and towards an invented one. It, it's fake news. We're going to continue this conversation with Bob Garfield because in his book he has a set of recommendations for people and what they can do and how they choose to live in this world, how they choose to swim in this a social media environment, Facebook, Google environment. It is pervasive. How do you deal with it? You might ask yourself, well, is there anything I can do? The answer is yes, and in the Takeout Outtake Especial, Bob Garfield and I will have a lengthy conversation about that, plus the three threshold questions. Many thanks, as always, to Busboys and Poets. Bob Garfield, it's been great to have you. Stay around for the Segment 5. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. For more from this week's conversation, download the Takeout Outtake Especial, Tuesday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. The Takeout is produced by Arden Farin, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, and Ellie Watson. CBSN production by Eric Susanen and Grace Seegers. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, visit TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News Radio. If you like the Takeout, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.